0: Hey Green Rush Nation, producer Shea Gunther here with a quick programming note. We have a fill-in episode today running as we'll be back with a regular episode of the Green Rush next week. The good news is this one is a banger. With friends of the show, Chris Crane and Ben Larson interviewing each other over on our sister podcast, Marijuana Today. Ben and Chris are both hosts of that show, and I asked them to spend an hour talking to one another about their various accomplishments and achievements within legal cannabis, of which there are a plenty. If you have any interest in learning more about how to do well in legal marijuana, both on the business side as well as the activist side, then you will love this one. Enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to a special episode of Marijuana Today. This is this week's host, Chris Crane. And we've got another host. This is... Hello, it's Ben (laughs) Larson. (laughs) What are we doing here? How did we get here? (laughs) Uh, I ask myself that question every day. Um, So for Marijuana Today listeners, uh, this is one of the sort of special episodes that uh, Shay Gunther, our our fearless producer, has been rolling out um, as a way to sort of transition from the the daily and give you guys some extra fun content um, and uh, help you all get to know some of us Regulars a little bit better. You've been hearing our voices for a long time. For, for me, it's been about six years now. Uh, for Ben, a couple, couple years, I think. Uh, and uh, so this is not an episode for us to get serious about marijuana business and politics, um, or at least about this week's news in marijuana business and politics, but for you to get to know us a little bit better um, and our, our involvement in the cannabis movement and industry.
0: Uh, so and, and, and I get to I get to honestly say that I'm here with one of the smartest people in the industry and movement because <laughs> Chris Crane, is the gold standard in my eye, and I have a lot of questions to ask them. Um, so, yeah, sorry for cutting you off there, Chris. No, just, no, 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 uh, no. This is this I, is how I it's think, gonna work I, today. Yeah, it's it's. I, it's I'm two thinking hosts. about our normal intro, and I'm just like, oh yeah, this is the smartest person in the in the industry movement. I, uh, in well, my thank eyes. you, thank you.
1: Um, you're not you're not you're you're pretty smart yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <I'm right. laughs> yeah, no, no. This is how it's gonna be. We have we have no script today. We have no sort of set questions. I think we're just gonna kind of interview each other and chat about you know what we're doing here and how the industry's got here, where it's going and uh, hopefully you all you all enjoy it. Um, I hope we will too. I have no idea but let's uh, <laughs> let's let's jump in. Well, Ben, you know, I, you know I, I actually, you know, we've been podcasting together for a year or so now, I actually don't know that much about your, your background. I mean, I know about what you're doing now and, and, and Virtosa and whatnot, but um, I don't have a good sense of how you got here. So why don't we start with that? I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what, what brought you to cannabis?
0: Yeah, great questions. Uh, <laughs> um, well, this is going to be fun. Um, so I, I've been working with early stage startups uh, for over a decade now. Um, so I love creating things, and well, let's just say in the cannabis industry, there's been a lot of creation, uh, especially over the last six years that I that I've been in the gig. Um, <laughs> you know, before that, even more circuitous, I was actually a professional engineer uh, doing, you know, uh, civil engineering, transportation planning, that kind of stuff. Um, so how I got even into the early stage startups was kind of a journey, but we'll just kind of cut that story short. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was working, uh, with early stage startup programs, uh, helping them build them around the world, uh, which, you know, to create a program, you also have to have an ecosystem. Um, and that was a big part of my job is like dropping into a city that didn't historically have a startup culture, um, pulling together the business leaders, giving them kind of a uh, guidance in, in curriculum. And this was all through the founder Institute. So it's not mm. my brainchild, but, um, you know, worked really closely with Adeo Ressi, the CEO of founder Institute, uh, to kind of just proliferate this concept that Silicon Valley itself was, a the, the good side of Silicon Valley, you know, uh, that creates stuff and, you know, raises money. Um, that that's a mindset. It's not necessarily a place. And so, you know, got to go all around the world and create startups in locales that just historically didn't have that culture of sharing and mentorship and kind of the rising tide mentality. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, I I was an entrepreneur and I was destined to do my own thing. Um, And I was looking for my next adventure when the cannabis industry just kind of kept knocking on the door. (laughs) I, I hadn't historically consumed it much. Um, I wasn't opposed to it, you know. I had like my libertarian tendencies, but I knew for one thing that it was far less dangerous than than alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're from the Bay Area, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm indoctrinated so and in, yeah. born and raised in California, so it's like part of my blood. Yeah, um, I was gonna say yeah, this, in is, this is infor- this is this infor- is to you, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in California, yeah. especially in the Bay Area. Yeah, but it's you know it's crazy. It was like uh, in 2015, there was starting to be pitch competitions and you know, Silicon Valley investors were starting to talk about it, but they didn't know how to get in. And, you know, some of these pitch competitions, it was it was very entertaining. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of sophistication. I remember. Uh, it was just like, yeah. Yeah. It was just like, a, oh, and like, you know, I remember the first events I was going to was like Evan Horowitz's uh, weed club. And I'm like, oh, a weed club. And it was like, and then it was like, fun. That's the kind of club I'd like to go to. Yeah, yeah. And they' like they're like, oh, hosted at the runway incubator. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. That's pretty that's pretty mainstream. And you go in, like, all right, no smoking weed in the building, guys. Uh, but we'll go down <laughs> and have a sesh on the sidewalk afterwards. And then like there's just this realization, it's like, wow, you have like venture capitalists, lawyers, business people smoking weed out on the sidewalk, like huddled in the cold in San Francisco. And I'm like, this is gonna become a thing. Like this this need like people need professionals like. Myself, I guess, uh, need to just be out loud and proud, and like start fighting against like some of these uh, some of these rules. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess that was for my business partner myself. That was kind of the genesis of of Gateway uh, that we launched here in the Bay Area, uh, just to help you know bring capital into the space, professionalize some companies, and you know what it turned into was this awesome kind of community center. Uh, we had a really great office space in Jack London Square in Oakland. Uh, we had chose Oakland because it was, you know, the, the heart and soul of a lot of the advocacy movement was was right there um, uh, and just kind of married the two worlds. And, w- and we started throwing these events where you could have movie stars next to football players, next to Ed Rosenthal uh, <laughs> and, you know, Steve D'Angelo. And, and like, yeah, it was just like the great, you know, it was just a, a level playing field for everyone it felt like um and uh yeah it was just a special time and now fast forward you know six years uh, so much has happened and you know that's frankly kind of why i'm excited to talk to you today just because like if it feels like so much has happened for me and and i'm relatively fresh to all this um you know i'm interested to in see what this like journey has been like for you emotionally um because, he, heck, even like thinking back, I was meeting with my business partners for Vertosa last night and we were talking about like how we felt emotionally in November of December last year versus today. Um, and just what a wild roller coaster this has all been.
1: It, it has been absolutely wild. Um, I mean, just, yeah, completely wild. Um, it, so it's been, so that was, what, five, six years ago that you first got involved Yeah.
0: Yeah. So ran the program for, for about three years. Um, and a lot happened. We realized we were early for that kind of business model. Um, because at the end of the day, it wasn't a charity. We were trying to run a business. Um, but also, you know, found my, my business partner wasn't as enthralled with the cannabis industry as, as I was. Um, and so we decided to kind of start work going our separate ways. And in that time, I was developing a new investment thesis that was more focused on uh, the necessary investments to grow the whole ecosystem. So, kind of the infrastructure plays, the infusion technologies, you know, go mm-hmm. over here, um, <laughs> that could you know help the whole industry elevate and not just verticalize and and put all the value you know behind one brand. And so that's kind of the the ethos behind Vertos is like we want to we're you know we're investing a ton of capital and resources into research and development, uh, new technologies, and then trying to share them with all these different brands that we work with, um, and, and keep it, you know, as open as possible. So we have no, you know, exclusive relationships, like not trying to give anyone a leg up on each other. It's just trying to create the standard for, for safe and efficacious products.
1: It's kind of building a community in the process, right? It's the nice thing about being able to touch all these different brands and work with all these different brands, right? You're kind of creating a a community where you're, you know, you're seen as trusted because you're not, you know, you're not competing with any of them. You're not favoring any one of them, right? So you must give you a lot of access to
0: some really interesting folks in the, uh, in the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the cool part about it is it's like, especially because we started with the beverage category, which is, you know, all the rage right now. (laughs) Um, it's, uh, there was this realization amongst everyone we were working with that we all needed to work together to kind of fruit this kind of um, this new category. And it wasn't going to get done by any one brand or any one, you know, manufacturer. And so we needed to all band together and help start creating the rules together. And so, you know, we were kind of the natural kind of uh, stimulus. The catalyst for this is like, bringing the right brands to the table, bringing the supply chain partners to the table and, and creating uh organization an organization here in California, the cannabis beverage association, along with our, our friends over at space station, um, to kind of, you know, make sure that we all had a unified voice and, and the cannabis industry is used to, uh, used to this and or attempting to do it. Right. It's, uh, it's kind of a constant battle of like, how do you have a unified voice? Um, but at least, you know, when it comes to a category, you can you can attempt to do it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's been, you know, for me, that's that's been the theme of my entire cannabis journey is just like we're all in this together. Like we need to, like, reduce the infighting as much as possible. And I, I think the, the 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 biggest challenge with that unification is that not everyone has the same North Star. Um, that's for sure. You know, especially when capitalism is involved, right? And yes, I'm a capitalist. You know, I've been on the venture capital side. I run a business. I, I can't deny that. But my North Star is getting people access to the plant. Um, and so that's where, you know, sometimes I will speak out against things that probably maybe, you know, aren't 100% aligned with, you know, my bottom line as a, as a business, right? I know that. that
1: no, that is it. A, that's, a that's a great point. I know that feeling well you know, having come from the, the activist world, um, right. And the, and the advocacy community, and then coming into the industry, like there are times where my advocacy hat or activist hat and my, my business hat somewhat conflict. Um, and you know, those are, I think those are the times when it, you know, that are real sort of test of who, you know, who you really are and what do you really care about, right? How important is that bottom line? And for me, though, what I, you know, what I, what I really, what I really try and look for is how do you, how do you blend those together, right? How do you find a way to make that work together? Um, And it's not always easy, but like I would use the example I would use in something like this is grow. Yes. Um, I
0: was just thinking that I'm like uh, right it's like that's the, that's the top the cl- mine right now
1: yeah it's the cl- it's the classic example and you have I think a lot of companies in the MSO world have either publicly or behind the scenes lobbied really hard um, to prevent home grow and and they use these uh, you know they use these these talking points of it's it's unsafe and home invasions and uh, the products not tested and who knows what's going into it right we want everything to be legal and regulated and it's just as somebody who's been an activist in this for so long um, and who cares you know similar to you, right, about making sure that people have access to the plant, I just can I can never get there to 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 support saying we should ban home grow. but it's it's something I know I wrote an article about for Forbes a few years ago kind of calling out the companies that are doing this it was after the after a bunch mm-hmm. of them wrote a letter to the governor in New York um, you know, calling on them to ban home grows as part of a trade association
0: that I, I think it's bad business like I think it's it's, a, it's it's not a good look I'll tell you that much <laughs> It's, it's less, not, uh, and it's it, going on all over the country now right like uh, I think we we're talking about Columbia care in Delaware and then um, uh, I think there's been some of people in in Michigan recently, I saw saw an article, or at least someone speaking very loudly about it on on LinkedIn. In the very least, right?
1: Um, no, it's an, it's it's going on all over the place. Columbia Care was involved in the one in, in New York as well, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. I just think it's, I think it's short sighted, and I think you're pissing off your core customer base, right? Yeah. Like, and and that's what I think that that's the thing that I try and get across to my colleagues in the industry on an issue like this that. It's a short-sighted view that in the end is probably going to cost you more in business than it will save you, right? Like you don't see Anheuser-Busch out there lobbying to ban home brewing, right? Yeah. You'd never see that. You would never see it because they know the people who brew beer at home buy lots and lots of beer, right? Like yeah. these are people like people who brew beer at home do it because they're beer enthusiasts because they love it. <laughs> Right. They're not only drinking the like, you know, the subpar IPA that they're brewing in their basement, right? They're doing that because it's fun and they're going to try it and they want to share it with their friends because the reality is like brewing really good beer is hard. Just like, you know, growing weed is not that hard, but growing really good weed is hard. That's right. so, you know, most people are going to grow so, in the so
0: extracting it and putting it in different types of products and all what, that kind of right, stuff. Right. And that too, right? like, nobody's like, doing that at home really, other than right. like, you know, your old school,
1: like <laughs> brownie making, but like nobody really does that anymore because you can buy way better edible products at the store. And so like people who buy or people who, people who grow at home, right. They're, they're, they're growing for themselves They're growing for some friends, right. They're generally not growing the absolute best of the best quality. And those people are, you know, same, same, same thing, right. They're just like the people who brew beer in their basement are not going to only drink that, you know, mediocre IPA, they're they're gonna go out and they're gonna buy all different kinds of other beers out there because they love beer. That's why they do it. Same thing. The person who's growing a strain of Blue Dream and Jack Harrow or whatever in their in their in their in their basement and that comes out fine, right? Not the best of the best, yeah. but it's fine. They're also going to the store to buy other strains that they can't grow on their own or they aren't growing. But they're also buying edibles and they're buying vape pens and they're buying you know the the drinks that you know you're you're working on, right? They're buying all these other products that they can't make at home. And if a company's yeah. out there saying you shouldn't have the right to grow that blue dream in your basement or in your closet in your backyard, they're not going to buy your other products, and so you're yeah. just you're pissing off your your core customer base and and that that's where I think we need to come together right and 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 try and get the industry to understand that these advocacy and industry goals really are for the most part sort of one and the same
0: yeah well the you know the the other aspect of it is that we have i mean I'm in California so I'm a, I'm a little bit blessed with the the weather um, but I'm growing my first weed plant out in my yard and it's beautiful and I, I just it grows so much every day I'm like super excited to see it every day and when people come over I want to talk about it and show it and smell it and like and you know I I just look at it as like it's a, a great way to like normalize the plant right and that's frankly what that's all in all of our best interests and so people have like if it becomes normal for people to have cannabis growing in their yards or in their houses, like what's more normalizing than that? And, you know, I, I don't know yet. Like, like you said, it, it's just such a short sighted move, but, um, you know, I think.
1: Right. But also, Emma, I mean, look, I, I,
0: I, not a cut you off, but like when
1: your plants ready to harvest, you're probably not going to stop growing weed. Are you? i'm <laughs> <No. laughs> probably gonna stop buying it start buying weed right now that's growing it
0: but like that's yeah that's yeah. not going to be the only weed you consume once no, you're no. harvesting your plant yeah and you know frankly i mean i might not even consume it i just like growing it you know right it's like, right I, right like, exactly oh, i mean i mean don't get me wrong i'm gonna consume it but like i'll probably gift it um but like not enough to like to the point where people are other people are going to go stop buying weed, which is probably a fear. You know, it's like, oh, what if all these people start growing all this immaculate weed and then like start handing it out to people and then like uh, they're not going to want to buy any. And I just think that's, I don't know. It's kind of like uh, I equated to the, the fears of like people uh, afraid that like teenagers are going to start consuming cannabis more, right? Like I, I talked about this in the last episode where mm-hmm. it's like, it's just like the numbers have not changed. <laughs> it's like from <laughs> from 2009 to 2019, like nothing has changed. In fact, the peak was in 2011 before any legalization occurred. Um, and so it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think people just need to ease up on, on that one a little one. But I mean, you are, I mean, you're, you're president of an, of a multi-state operator. Um, like. <laughs> how has that how have those discussions gone and how has that been navigated in the past for you you know
1: for us it's never really been it's never really been a a concern and we've always and and look i think this stems from the culture that we tried to build from the beginning which largely stems from you know my advocacy and a lot of our early staff and look the reality is most of these people aren't here anymore Um mm-hmm. aren't with the company it's been 10 and a half years so uh, that's it's wow. pretty normal um but you know that ethos that we've had from the very beginning that we are about more than just more than just selling cannabis right we're about helping to bring about a post prohibition world um mm-hmm when you keep that as sort of your North stars that, that guides your company, an issue like this isn't even something we really need to debate, right? Like right. it's for the most part, it the, the the company's kind of deferred to me on stuff like this. And, and that's just kind of been it, right? Like I write my article for Forbes and we're not going to then go around, you know, go out and like behind the scenes, start lobbying
0: to ban home grow. Um, yeah. so I, I'm, I am curious about that because like I, you know, when we launched Vertosa, we, we spent a lot of time developing our, our branding and missioning and just like the our our values and we've stuck to them. Right. And we made little edits here and there, but we very much know what our company stands for. I'm curious to what level, you know, this, this column 10 like very large companies in the cannabis industry, what level have they gone through there? Because I, I, I don't know what any, any of these major MSOs stand for.
1: You know, I, I think it's probably different for each company. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it generally, you know, it flows from the top, right? I mean, it's yeah. always going to flow from the founders and the CEO. Um, uh, and then, you know, uh, they all handle sort of government relations differently. And so the government relations teams will, you know, will approach this in a way that they think is best for their company. And I do think, you know, look, most companies handle this like you would expect companies to handle it, um, which is looking out for what they think is in the best interest of their bottom line, right? Not necessarily some, you know, broader ideal, um, but their bottom line. And sometimes they, they they mix, right? Like ending prohibition nationally is in everybody's interest, right? Mm-hmm. And if they think that, you know, that that something may be, a po- you know, may not be in their immediate term, absolute best interest, but is going to further the cause of ending prohibition nationally, then they may make that decision, what I'm trying to do is put out things like, you know, like this, you know, l- like this thought on HomeGrow to try and appeal to their own self-interest, right? And their own, economic- and their own bottom lines by saying, you know, you shouldn't oppose HomeGrow because it's a bad thing to do for your business, right? And get them to think about it differently because the, the, the gut reaction or the gut thinking on this is people can grow their own. They're going to buy less of ours, Mm-hmm. And it's more nuanced than that. And so, if I can put out there to the world as somebody that is with an MSO, right, is an MSO founder, uh, that no, we're thinking about this differently, and we actually think that 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 opposing publicly opposing home grow is going to be bad for business. Like maybe it'll get some of these folks to change their thinking as well, right. and 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 you know, and we'll wind up with better policy.
0: Yeah, I think I think the you know a topic that has kind of a a it's a similar question, I guess, whether it's good or bad for business, but actually is legitimately debatable is cross state commerce. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. because there's so many companies, especially the MSOs that have well created value by navigating around the current construct. And if all of a sudden that's kind of, you know, those rules are removed, (laughs) um, like the, it's like a, it's a boon to, it's it's, it's per, a perceptible boon to some people's businesses, but it could be taking away the, the greatest value of some other businesses. Um, and so I, I am interested to see how that conversation develops over the next year. Um, especially that's what I think you know, is going to really split
1: the industry. I think it's a, it's a really, yeah. I mean, it's a great, it, it, it's a great one, right? Because. I think it depends on how you see the industry evolving, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know a lot of the MSOs are going to really push hard to stop or delay, and really delay, because ultimately interstate commerce is going to come into play. Yeah, but can't stop
0: it, but just slow. But you can delay out. it, right? I mean, you can you can yeah. you
1: can lobby to say that. You know, when we pass the whatever the more actor or, or federal legalization that's a whole other issue right i don't think that's happening this year anyway but if it does right that we should we should we should give it five to seven years before interstate commerce rolls out right like mm-hmm. let's allow these bigger companies companies to to make their money back get their footing right uh, you know the, the the big alcohol tobacco companies won't be as interested in jumping in without interstate commerce so you know let's give the existing players some time to Adjust to the new realities and 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 eventually be able to compete with some of these bigger players. I understand that thinking. Um, yeah. I don't agree with it. I understand right. it, right? I understand yeah, where it's yeah, coming yeah. from. Um, but they're also, I think, if I think, I think it it somewhat depends too on where where are you on the value chain, right? If you've expected, if you if you if you have invested substantial amounts of capital in these, you know, big indoor cultivation facilities in places where it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to be growing anything, right? Let alone cannabis, uh, particularly right. in places like you know the Midwest or the Northeast. Um, and that's where you see most of your money coming from over the next five to seven years. You might be you might be much more inclined to support a longer implementation or longer delay in interstate commerce. If you're mm-hmm. a company that's been focused more on the finished product side of things and the consumer package goods side of things, um, interstate commerce may be a blessing, right? Because yeah. you can produce gummies in Illinois or in Missouri or in you know or in the Northeast almost as cost effective as you can in, in most parts of the country, right? That's a manufacturing process, not cultivation, right? You're not you're not. You're not having to like, control for atmospheric and, and, and environmental conditions, um, which, right. are, which is a huge cost in cultivation, right? It's why most of the cultivation will ultimately end up moving you know, to the West Coast, because um, it's sort of optimal conditions for growing. Especially outdoor greenhouse, um, but if you're producing gummies and lozenges and uh, fruit chews and, you know, and and vape pens and all this other stuff, yeah. you kind of do that it anywhere. It'd be
0: great. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> know the cost the cost of
1: labor is a little bit higher here. Like, might be better off doing it in Alabama, right, than in than in Indiana than, in, than in Illinois. But you know, it's not not, not huge cost differences there. But mm-hmm. in that case, like interstate commerce is probably a good thing because it drastically reduces your cost of biomass right the yeah. inputs that go into creating these final products and so if you can well, this you comes know- up
0: this comes up in the beverage category quite a bit because you you know all other beverage you know verticals have massive facilities where they do these these large production runs and you get the economies of scale and you try to transfer that equipment to you know state by state and it's really hard Uh, to make products at a reasonable price Um, and that's why we see these infused beverages on the market that are you know being priced at six eight dollars a unit on a store shelf when like the consumer perception because of alcohol would expect that to be you know a dollar or two dollars a unit right 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 Um, right when that's going to come down right (laughs) not to mention the taxes on top that add 30 percent
1: Right, exactly. But that will come down once, you know, once those, well, the taxes are what they are, right? But um, once the inputs, the, the biomass that goes into that is a lot cheaper, that comes down. Um, right. That price starts coming down and when, in, and, th- and that happens with interstate commerce, right? When people can grow massive fields, outdoor fields, especially when we're talking about biomass, it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be grown. Well, it just has to be grown, right? Yeah. It's all getting extracted yeah. out anyway. Um, I mean, look, there are some, there, there are going to be top of the line consumers. I was having this conversation with a friend in the industry yesterday. She's like, but I, I, I care a lot about really high quality, full spectrum distillate. It's like, mm-hmm. right. But you are the top of the consumer chain here. Yeah. yeah most yeah. people there'll don't be, there'll really be care products
0: for her too it's, uh, of course of course <laughs> yeah.
1: but the vast majority of consumers want a consistent quality gummy that you know that's good that is cheap right that, that mm-hmm. it, and if you can grow in these massive fields in in california and oregon right washington extract all of that and send it across the country your biomass costs come down by you know by a by a a a, a, a a massive margin. Right. I mean, you're not talking about like dropping half the cost. You're talking about exponential um, decrease in in value. And then and then once we open up international markets. Right. And we talk about international commerce, not just not just interstate commerce. Like, I I don't know if any other than other than that really high end, uh, you know, the really, really high end full spectrum, you know, distillate. I don't know if any of the distillates going to be or, the, or the, the biomass that goes into the distillate is, is going to be grown in the United States. It's going to be grown in massive fields and greenhouses in Mexico, in Colombia, right, where we do most of our commercial agriculture and, 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 and cut flowers and stuff. Exported here, yeah, the product's not going to be great by the time it gets here, but who cares? It's all being run through extraction anyway and turn into distillate or they can create the distillate down there. Your quality might be a little bit worse, but again, you know, the, that cost,
0: you know, there are companies that will take it because the cost will be incredibly low. So that's, that's an interesting topic because uh, it brought it up recently, right? Where he's talking about having a presence in the international kind of, um, the international kind of market for, for cannabis. Uh, when we do push for legalization immediately, I'm like, well, is he expecting this to go hand in hand? Like we legalize and then immediately we're looking at the, the role that the U S can play at the international level. Um, and I'm just, I, I'm curious, like at that point, do we start, uh, you know, does the government get involved with like, Oh, we want to do mostly exports and, and, and minimize the amount of imports and like how I have no idea how that kind of stuff works. <laughs> um, I think there's no, it's a great question. And I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I mean,
1: I think there's going to be a push
0: to minimize
1: imports into the United States for some period of time. Mm-hmm. um, I don't know I don't, I don't think that's sustainable in the long run um but yeah. I do think that's probably going to take longer it's really easy for to scaremonger uh, you know the uh, the boogeyman of you know international commerce and poor quality product coming from Mexico and this specter of cartels and whatnot, which is all kind of bullshit um mm-hmm. but yeah you can see the you, you can you can see that 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 coming um uh, at some point down, you know, some point down the road. Um, so I think it'll take, I think it'll take some time, but I think eventually it gets there. Um, yeah. but you can certainly, I mean, you can certainly imagine like most of the big MSOs and what in the United States are really, if they're lobbying against interstate, they're really going to lobby against international commerce. But again, mm-hmm. unless your focus is on final, you know, final consumer packaged goods, right? Cause those brands will hold their value way, way better than the flour will. Um, right, as the flour commoditizes, and so like if I'm a Cresco, for example, like Cresco claims to be a consumer packaged goods company, right? Like that's that's what they put out there to the world. That's what they say they they're, they're focused on. Now they sell a lot mm-hmm. of flour in Illinois and in and in you know Maryland's and these other limited license states. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, if they and, and I'm saying this, I've never talked, I've not talked with you know Charlie Bechtel or anybody at Cresco about this. I'm just just right. just going off of what they're saying publicly. If they are truly a consumer packaged goods company and that's where they see themselves going when, when all of this is said and done, they should probably support interstate and international commerce because right. like, yeah they they'll be able to shut down some of their grow their their grow operations but they'll be able to massively increase their margins on the consumer packaged goods which they're stating is the ultimate goal of their business. Um so it'll be very interesting, interesting. to see how some yeah. of these companies you know how some of these companies approach this as we you know as we really as we really you know get into it.
0: So I want to I want to dial back and, and talk a little bit about your origin because it sounded like you, you you jumped in and started forefront in the earth the early 2010s is that, is that, is that right? In in 2010. Yeah. In 2010.
1: Okay. Uh, no, I'm sorry. 2011. It was February of 2011 when we first started.
0: Okay. Take me back to like before that, like the, the kind of like the advocacy that you were doing and then just kind of how you decided to take the approach that you did with forefront versus potentially other opportunities that were out there or, or, or maybe there weren't other opportunities. That was the only way to go uh, based on, (laughs) on your locale. Uh, I mean, it it was a
1: series of fortunate and unfortunate events that kind of led to it or (laughs) what at the time seemed like unfortunate events that turned out to be quite fortunate. Um, didn't really see it at the time. So, you know, I mean, I think most of the listeners know I came from normal and students for sensible drug policy. And when I was leaving SSDP in late 2009, um, you know the industry was very, very, very small, very much in its infancy, really mostly in Northern California at that point. Um, right? Southern California was a mess. Colorado was just getting up and running. But you had these luminaries in Northern California, right? The the, the Harborsides and Peace and Medicines and uh, Berkeley Patients Group, uh, right? You had folks like Don Duncan, uh, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the early luminaries with the LAPCG down in West Hollywood, right? One of the, like West Hollywood at the time was kind of the, like, oasis for regulated cannabis in this, like, massive unregulated sea of, um, you know, of, 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 of I mean, really gray market stores at the time. Um, right. And, you know, Harborside was one of my big donors at SSDP at the time and, and had gotten to know Steve D'Angelo and had gotten you know, tours of Harborside. And, you know, it was really, it was it was sort of a light bulb. I don't know if it was really a moment, but sort of a light bulb series of moments seeing places like Berkeley Patients Group and Harborside, both of who were donors at, at, my, at the nonprofit. And it really occurred to me that what they were doing... Was going to help bring about an end to prohibition just as much as the advocacy work that I was doing in DC. Because what was what was what they were doing, sometimes inadvertently, and and I mean in the case of really of like Steve D'Angelo and, and Debbie Goldsberry and these early pioneers, like they knew what they 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 understood the bigger picture because they were activists yeah. themselves, was yeah. demonstrating to the world what a post what a post-prohibition world would look like. Right. I mean, it was a very much an act of civil disobedience. These things, these stores were arguably not even really legal under California law at the time, (laughs) Uh, even even though they were licensed by like the city of Oakland and Berkeley, they weren't licensed by the state of California yet. Um, But nobody could walk through a harborside or a Berkeley patients group or a piece in medicine and say that should be illegal. Uh, Right. And so it, it occurred to me that there's only so much we could do through advocacy and telling people all of the benefits of legalization um, because they'd never seen it. They they had no visual to contrast with the bullshit that had been driven into their heads through, you know, anti-drug campaigns and DARE and everything else that we've seen in this in this in society. And if you could just show them this is what a regulated cannabis is going to look like, there's nothing to be afraid of, it's going to change public perception, it's going to help change, change the world. So that was my motivation in leaving the advocacy world and going to the industry. Um, you know, It was really early to be thinking about like publicly traded companies and, MS- <laughs> and the term MSO was n- not a concept yet. Um, yeah. yeah it was an idea Sing, to like a s-
0: single single state operator. Yeah. Even that <laughs> it it was, was not the a concept, first step, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your yeah. single <laughs> store operator was all that existed. <laughs> um,
1: like that was it. Um, but, you know, it was a way to 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 get involved in what I saw as a new and emerging industry. To continue to work on the same advocacy work I'd been doing, maybe not make a nonprofit salary for the rest of my life. Right? I'd just gotten married yeah, and was thinking yeah. about kids and all that. And like, okay. hey, here's a way mm-hmm. that you know, maybe I can make a little bit more money. But I wasn't doing it to get rich, um, mm-hmm. right? That it nobody was has its rich. <laughs> sure, yeah, but
0: no, nobody yeah. was getting rich
1: in cannabis at that time.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it, it was the legal market at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I, when I did get in, you know. I didn't have all this context. And so this has been kind of like a, it's like a, like kind of these like piecemeal, like revelations, like throughout, like, you know, my journey here. Um, but I remember asking like, why is, why are like Steve D'Angelo and Troy Dayton, like very clearly advocates running an investment network. And I just couldn't like put it together. I'm like, that doesn't seem like it, It's like you'd go to the ArcView events and it was like a lot of, uh, you know, talking about the advocacy and the movement. And I'm like, you know, me being a, coming out of Silicon Valley, like, aren't we here to see deals? Like, what, where, where, where are the deals at? Like, how are we going to make money? <laughs> <laughs> um, but now it all makes sense. Like, it's just like uh, been such a compacted timeline. And that was the next logical step. It's like, okay, we can only do so much from like, you know, policy work and advocacy. We actually have to just start pushing the envelope on the on the business side and show yeah. that this is like, a truly normalized opportunity and that there's really going to be growth here. And it's like, you're like manifesting, right? It's like, you're telling everyone like, this is going to be the biggest growth opportunity. it's like, it's in that you know, it's a capitalistic society. So that's what gets people excited. And absolutely. And,
1: and it's, it was one and the same, right? The, the industry and the advocacy at that time, it really was one and the same, right? There was no, there was, there's a reason why Steve D'Angelo and Troy Dayton were, You know, started ArcView and were the first ones to like bring cap bring real capital into the industry because they knew for the industry to grow and for us to be able to you know show people this post prohibition world we needed money to do it right we needed to bring investors in and those investors were people that by and large were not donating to normal the marijuana policy project right these are people that cared about cannabis a bit but like never thought of themselves as activists or advocates and. and and this was a way of bringing them into the movement where they never would have been otherwise like that was very much front of mind for all of all of us who made that transition in the early days that we saw the power that this industry had to bring resources into the movement to bring new people into the movement and to frankly to get people who were financially invested in the success of cannabis now having a financial incentive to legalize because if you Mm -hmm. legalize in more mark in more states you open up more markets for your business so even if they don't think of themselves as an advocate they have they have a, a a business motivation to push for advocacy reforms and we see that now i mean you look at most of the work that's being done in dc is being pushed by the industry you know even more so than by the movement now some good some bad there um but uh you know you know th- there's definitely some negatives to that but we have way more i mean when i was in the movement there was like four donors that everybody was fighting over right and so like dpa and normal and ssdp and well, ssdp a little bit less so but um because we were always like you know the kids that everybody loved um so we kind of <laughs> you know we kind of got the scraps of like everyone else's donors um but you know <laughs> but like you know mpp and asa and dpa and normal right they were all fighting for the same donors right it was you know, John Sperling from the University of Phoenix, uh, uh, George Zimmer from Men's Warehouse, George, yeah. Sor- George Soros, uh and uh and Peter Lewis from Progressive Insurance like those four provided like 90% of the funding wow. for the drug policy movement and it created this real friction within the within the movement because you know the executive directors of all these organizations were like fighting for the same you know piece of the same pie and it was a very small pie and it's just a completely different landscape now and that's because of the rise of this industry right for
0: good and for bad yeah night no, <laughs> I'm just remembering back even between like the difference between 2000, say 15 and 2017. Like the, when we first got into the industry, you could probably like write down a, a, a list of like true investors in the space. Like on a single piece of paper, like this is, this is everyone uh, that everyone's going to be going to, to try to get money out of. And like, mm-hmm. you could like, mm-hmm. you could almost like on the daily or, you know, maybe once a week be like, Oh, we have a new investor in the pool. Okay, great. And it's like <laughs> and then like someone else would get funding and it's like, okay, no those, no those. Oh, that's a new one. And like and and then now, you know, now it's it's a new investor like probably, you know, every hour that's coming into the space and uh people are uh there there is plenty of money out there uh now, especially compared to where we were before, but it was, it was scary working with early stage companies and be like, I'm going to create a whole portfolio of companies and we're going to try to get all of you funding. <laughs> I'm right, like, right, right. Absolutely. This is insane. And and I know like, you know, Patrick and Micah of like Canopy uh, Boulder were probably experiencing the same thing. And I, you know, had I done my due diligence would have probably, re- re- you know, understood that before launching Gateway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fair.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, totally different world. So, I mean, you a- you asked about the you know the sort of the starting a forefront. Um, you know, I mentioned starting. Uh, I mean, basically when I moved out to California, worked with Steve D'Angelo and started this this business called CanBe, which mm-hmm. was designed to sort of help people get licensed and replicate the HarborSide operating model. And we created all this great intellectual property about how to run a compliant dispensary based on how harborside operated and the owners were the owners of harborside and peace and medicine and spark um and a couple others it was this, this this luminaire all these luminaries of the early industry um and we were just it was just too early um mm. and so the thing failed after like a year and a half um yeah. this is where i say you know sort of the series of unfortunate events right i was not an owner there i was brought out as one of the first staff members i was a you know senior staffer, director in the company, um, or director level staffer, I should say, not a, you know, not a board member. Um, but we had five owners, all of whom were like these big luminaries of the industry. And here I came from the advocacy world to help put this thing together. And it was, it was an amazing experience. We had an unbelievable team. I maybe in my life have never worked with a cooler group of people that I worked with. It can be, um, as awesome as, as it's been at forefront for, for much of our existence. Um, we just had such an amazing crew of people, most of whom came from the advocacy world. A lot of them were friends from SSDP, and I put that team we've been able to put that team together a few years later uh you know it's it, 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 it probably was no 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 limit to what we could have done but we were just too early and there were problems with the business model that uh, was difficult to solve and you know you had an ownership group of people who were all amazing and successful cannabis early cannabis entrepreneur entrepreneurs in their own right but were all kind of used to being in charge um and right. so like making decisions around how to like tweak the business model and, and make adjustments <laughs> was really difficult when they all, you know, these were some pretty big ego folks not saying anything that I don't think any of them would disagree with. Um, and you know, and, and was, I mean, Steve D'Angelo says it himself, right? Like, like I was not used to not being the final decision maker. Um, and right. it was, it was difficult. So it all fell apart. Um, and, uh, I, I, I had just, you know, not that long ago, moved to California, and what the hell am I going to do with my life? Um, and was able to turn that into forefront. You know, I had I had established a relationship with uh, Josh Rosen, who at the time was actually running the the family investment office for John Sperling, right from the university of Phoenix, one of those big mm-hmm. four investors or big four right, right. funders that I mentioned, John was running his, uh, uh, Josh was running his, his for-profit investment arm, which was focused on socially conscious uh, businesses. Um, they did a lot of like wind energy, renewable energy work back then. Um, uh, genome sequencing stuff. I think, you know, John Sperling tried to like clone his, he created a cloning company originally designed for like rich people to be able to like clone their pets, um, mm-hmm. which, which <laughs> it, it actually morphed into something more societally useful. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, they, they were a client of ours at Canby um, in the early days. And Josh and I really, Struck up a friendship through that, and when Canby fell apart, I, I I called him. I was like, Hey, Josh, I know John's been interested in this, in looking at this industry. I know you 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 know the IP that we've put together, and that there's nothing like it in the industry right now how about we put together an investment package and buy all this intellectual property at a can be and repurpose it. And that mm-hmm. was how we started Forefront. We, we, we used that oh, early, wow. okay. that early Harborside IP, um, that early Harborside can be IP. We had a, up until, I mean, really up until just a few years ago, we had a licensing agreement back to Harborside. Anytime we opened a store for a client or for ourselves, Harborside oh, got wow. some money. Um, no cause kidding. we were still, yeah, we were still, we had to pay off that licensing agreement from the early days. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's done now. Um, And those materials, you know, look nothing like they did 10 years ago. Um, They've gone through tons of iterations, but, um, you know, and and it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was really kind of a win-win too, right? Because the, the, the principles at, at, Canby, who are all friends and great people, right? Canby had a lot of debt on the books, right? That would have flowed up to the, the owners. So we were able to help them pay off their debts by buying this IP that they weren't going to use otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. And we got into the consulting game ourselves and started out as consultants. And you know, we, we didn't become an MSO or an operator ourselves until years later. Um, you know, in the early days, you know, as I mentioned, John Sperling was our initial investor. You know, John was the chair of the Apollo Group, which is the University of Phoenix parent company. Um, mm-hmm. They hated us. Um, yeah. like the, the yeah. his, his risk managers absolutely hated us. They didn't want you know, <laughs> so we could like, we couldn't advertise, we couldn't market ourselves publicly. I did like, I mean, high times did like a, an article on me at the time where I, I, you know, mentioned what we were doing and like, they all got really pissed off about it because they didn't want John public, even though John had donated like millions of dollars to legalization, they didn't want him publicly associated with marijuana business at the time um, so like it was it was challenging to operate we had to be you know we had to only be in the consulting space we couldn't touch the plant and um, you know a couple of years later University of Phoenix stock tanked as um, the there's the for-profit uh, 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 university uh, industry kind of tanked um, and became more difficult for John to meet his financial obligations he also got, got old fast. I mean, he was like 91 when he made the initial investment, um, wow. but was yeah. really spry. I mean, he was super sharp, still completely with it. So, I mean, in those early days, like when his risk manager, like we would, you know, we would ask for a new tranche of money and the risk managers would like hem and haw and, and Josh would like then just go to dinner at John's house and say, Hey, here's what's going on. He's like, Oh no, no, of course. Like I've committed to this <laughs> of use the money. Don't uh, listen to those people. <laughs> right. But then his, you know, his faculty started failing him a little bit as he, you know, was, he was 93, 94. And, um, mm-hmm we weren't able to, you know, get through to him directly and it just became really challenging. And he was worth a lot less money because of the, the stock tanking. And so we were able to buy the company out, 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 not out from under him. We were able to buy him out of the company, um, mm-hmm. with some new investors. And that was right around the time the coal memo, uh, uh the, se- the second coal memo came into play. Oh, and right. that's when we're like, well, yeah, yeah. we've developed all this great, operating protocols and ip and we've got this awesome operations team that we're using to like help all these other people get open and our clients aren't paying us uh, for the most part a lot of our clients aren't paying us because they don't like cutting the checks once they get open and we should just go and get some licenses ourselves and that was the genesis of us transitioning from being just a consultant to you know to, to becoming ultimately an mso ourselves
0: yeah that's that's awesome i i wow what a journey it kind of actually yeah, it feels like forever ago now.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was 10 and a half years ago that we started this thing.
0: That's wild. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the way I was feeling, uh, when I was winding down, uh, gateway. It was, um, I'm like, man, I, I've spent the last, you know, 10 years giving people advice. <laughs> I'm like, maybe it's just time for me to go do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, as, as we kind of, uh, you know, the conversation has, has certainly evolved, uh, over the years. And now it feels even, even over it, the last
1: 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. 45 minutes, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of like, we're, we're waiting on the edge of our seats for this, uh, this federal legalization. Um, it's a, it's not, it feels like a matter of when, although, you know, I, I'm very much used to being surprised, so I will. I will uh, reserve that opportunity for myself to be to be uh, disappointed. Um, but like, what's post legalization look like for you? Have you kind of thought about that? Like, you know, it's like working so long to get to a certain point. I know, I know, it doesn't end with that. If California is any indication of what of course work has to be done post uh, legalization, um, but man, it's like such a major movement. Like, it's like for. It, 420 of hopefully next year but uh probably maybe the following year um like i just can't imagine what that's going to be like
1: i mean well i don't you know i don't you know i I don't think it's happening soon um like i don't think it's going to happen this year unfortunately um but we've talked a lot about this on, on the show um but when it does yeah, look, there's going to be a lot of work in implementation, um, right? There's going to be a lot of, you know, a, a lot of work, a lot of, you know, a lot of a, a lot of work to make sure it's done the right way, that the right people have the opportunity to participate. Um, so I look forward to being involved in that conversation and that discussion. And I don't know, at some point, like it's been a long time. At some point, I look forward to just being able to like sit back and smoke weed and kind of watch it <laughs> play out around me without like being right in the center of it. But yeah. still, probably a ways away from that. I don't know. What about you? What are you excited about for post-legalization?
0: Man, um yeah, I don't know. It's I I was I I I I still kind of have the imposter syndrome thing, so I still feel relatively fresh to the industry, but am starting to feel a lot more confident in my skin and in, in realizing that okay, I've I've certainly put in a bit more time than others uh relative to to the work to be done here. And just to Yeah, be that that, that kind of, I don't know, grounding source for for all the new business and all the new activity that will be created after that, right? Um, And I think it's just going to open the doors for a lot of opportunities. Maybe not sit back, but definitely, you know, take some more advisory roles, not be so involved with the heavy lifting. Um, Because there's just a lot of A lot of knowledge that we all have have gained uh, through going on this journey. And and we know what's important, what needs to be remembered Um, and what, frankly, what needs to still be fought for, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, where we we talk a lot about social equity. um, But, you know, we're also kicking off Pride Month right now and the LGBTQ uh, movement. Uh, played a huge role in, in cannabis legalization. Um, mm-hmm. and, Absolutely. you know, Dennis Piron Pier- and, and, you know, coming out of San Francisco and, um, you know, I, I think just making sure that anyone that is coming in and looking to benefit and profit off of, off the industry, uh, r- remembers that, you know, the movement and writing some of the wrongs of the past is, is still, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, so I, I, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to kind of continue continue to do my work there. I think the best way for me to do it right now is to to run a run a business that really holds that wears it on our sleeve and kind of uh, you know shows that that you can build the company the, the the way you see fit and and pays credit to all that and still you know, has a lot of fun building great products in the space. No doubt. No doubt. Um, yes.
1: I, yeah. And I, I, I do look forward to being able to like watch others do most of the work. Um, but we gotta, we gotta ways to go to get there.
0: I, I will say the, the, the thing that this industry has given me is like this perspective that you can actually, uh, effect change, right? You can actually have influence on, on the rules of which you are operating in. Um, and that is a beautiful thing because if, if you don't get that level of exposure and you you don't get to sit down with politicians and, and eventually see rules be made based on the the guidance that you've given, like you may never understand that. And like you're just living in this like environment that's built for you. Um, and as someone personally who is very emotionally affected by a lot of like the social issues that, that go on in our day to day. um up until the, my involvement in the cannabis, cannabis industry, it felt very helpless. It's like, how would I ever, how would I ever change anything? Like me, especially in California, right? It's like me and going voting. Yeah, like I'm pretty much going to be voting like everyone else in my state because it's like a very left leaning state, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I, <laughs> mean, like, like, I mean, I'm in Illinois. Right? It's not that, not it's that, like, that different. It's here. It's like literally my vote doesn't count, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, your vote. May or may not count, but your actions certainly can. And the sometimes it literally is just getting in front of someone and having a high-level conversation with them and educating them. You know, I, I've sat down with n- new assembly people and senators in, in California just this year and been like, okay, have you heard of a cannabis beverage? And they're mm-hmm. like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's your familiarity with cannabis in general? It's like, well, you know, I had some discussions around prop 64 i'm like wow okay we have a long ways to go but you know in a 30 minute 45 minute conversation you can not only bring them up to speed but like gain you know uh an advocate (laughs) frankly and it's like yeah we'll back that bill like uh, we'll make sure that this gets passed that's like that seems like a no-brainer um and sometimes it really is that easy other times it's not, right? I, I realize there's a lot of social issues that have very ingrained deep roots and it's very difficult to change. But, you know, for, for new movements like this, or it's not new, but it's new to some people. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can actually make change. So, like, you know, if anyone is, is indeed still listening to this, it's like this is why being an entrepreneur in the cannabis space is being an advocate uh, because you have to create the future for yourself and you actually can. And that's yeah. kind of cool.
1: You ha- yeah, you have to, right? I mean, look, I, one of the things I love, <laughs> I love doing when I when I speak at at especially investor conferences, is like, I'll you know, you get room full like bankers and investors and stuff, right? Who are but who are there because they're interested in cannabis, right? And and say, you know, how many people in this room have investments or ownership interests in in the cannabis industry, right? And like. of the room's hand will go up or something like that and say, how many of you consider yourself activists or advocates? Probably 10% of the room's hand goes up, Mm -hmm. right? If you're lucky. Mm -hmm. And then explain to them that like, look what you are doing, whether you like it or whether you think of it this way or not, is engaging in an act of civil disobedience that by having ownership or investment in a cannabis business, you now own a piece of something that is undeniably federally illegal. And, You could, it's very, very unlikely this would ever happen, but you could face arrest, prosecution, jail time. Some of these companies that are growing, you know, hundreds of thousands of plants collectively across the United States. On the books, you could face the death penalty. You know, they've never actually brought a federal death penalty case, but it is on the books for, you know, for growing over a certain amount of plants. And so, you know, whether you think of yourself as an advocate or you think of yourself as an activist or not, by being in this industry having an ownership interest in this industry you you are an activist whether you like it or not and you have an in, you have an an obligation to help bring about an end to prohibition and broader policy goals and by the way that also further's your business interests right because again new legalization means new markets it means new business opportunities so you've got a business obligation but don't forget you also have a moral obligation as uh, you know a, 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 as as a part of you having a piece of this industry
0: yeah and then j- i just i just wonder what percentage of those people you know are public about their uh, involvement in the industry whether they consider right, themselves right, advocates right. or not and frankly that in of itself is like you know a first step in advocacy right be public mm-hmm. about your involvement in the space be proud of it and explain to people why and and that's where it all starts. And, and that, that was that was the first thing that I gave to the industry. Right. It was like, I'm like, I guess I'm just I'm going to I'm going to get into cannabis and I'm going to go all in. And so my entire whatever. And I knew at the time, like whatever I'd done on on LinkedIn to date, it'd be. I'd be now a cannabis person, um, but I'd get to use that image, that you know, pretty squeaky clean image. Like, sure, mm-hmm. I wasn't on the straight and narrow in my engineering career. I, I ended that <laughs> after six years. But, you know, as a startup guy, in Silicon Valley. I have uh, spoke publicly. And all of a sudden, all my speaking gigs turned to cannabis. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, anyone that is willing to try to profit off of the cannabis industry should be willing to at least say, yes, I'm invested in the cannabis industry. And, you know, who knows, maybe even put it, on their LinkedIn, um, and that just that again that that helps with the normalization uh, of all of this and makes it feel that much more inevitable. And the more that the rulemakers see that these people of power are betting on this, uh, it just makes it that much easier.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's a great place to wrap this up. I think
0: we're um, at right yeah, about this the has hour mark. Fun. Yeah, yeah. it's been a good time. <laughs> It's always, it. always great to chat with you. Like, I, I, I know I gush about you, but it, it, it truly, truly is like, it is uh, an achievement for me personally. Like, I admired you. You're like a a North Star, like, as I, you know, had my journey coming into the industry, listening to you on the podcast, and then all of a sudden getting to be on it. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> and like, again, how we started, how did we get here? <laughs>
1: Well, it's been it's been awesome getting to work with you on the show as well. I mean, you've been a great addition to the show, and you know, appreciate your you know your voice and your views. Um, and uh, I, I very much ap- appreciate what you have to say here. That 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 makes me. Yeah. It makes me very proud. you know I had folks when I was getting into this, right and I had folks like Steve D'Angelo and and debbie Goldsberry and and you know these early pioneers that that I looked up to uh, in, in, in getting in, in getting into this and to you know to, to to hear that I could provide that to others coming in right that 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 makes me really proud. so I, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those, that, that's my East Bay crew. You know, those are the ones that uh, I remember my, my very first session and, and then we can hang up after this. <laughs> um, but my, my very first session at Gateway, um, I had Debbie Goldsberry, um, setting, I think, oh, who did I bring it? I think it was, uh, I think it was Patrick Lee from Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so the CEO of Rotten Tomato Tomatoes sitting next to Debbie Goldsberry, um, a Berkeley patients group. Uh, and then, she went on to do Magnolia Wellness, um, and it was just one of those cool moments. I'm like, we're bringing these worlds together and, you know, again, create the level playing field. It's like, your, Debbie, your advice is equally as important as, you know, the CEO of a tech company, and we're going to help build this industry together. Um, That's right. Debbie, oh. uh,
1: Debbie got me high at my very first normal conference when I was uh, oh. <laughs> 20, 21 years old. Uh, but I still remember she had some kick-ass white widow on the uh, upstairs balcony of Madam's Organ in Washington, D.C. at the uh, normal conference party. <laughs> um, so I'm forever grateful on that one.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> well, she's still got good weed. I, I can attest to that. <laughs> this is
1: true. This is very true. Um, All right, Ben. Well, this is awesome. Um, I don't think we need to do finishing moves here because this is not a regular show. Um, I think our whole show has kind of been a free-form finishing move. So I I appreciate you joining me for this. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it has been. Uh, Consider it finished.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today and have a wonderful marijuana tomorrow.
0: One take, Shay. One take.